0: Hi, I'm Kathy Walker, teacher, feminist and parent, and this is Raise Her Up, a podcast from the GDST, the UK's leading family of girls' schools. With 19,000 students across 25 schools and the largest women's alumni network of its kind, we are experts in girls' education and everything that goes with it. Even as a teacher with over 20 years' experience of working with young people and as a mum of two girls, I am still learning every day. I think we all are. In each episode, we'll welcome an expert guest who will address a different topic that, as modern parents, we are bound to encounter at some point. In this episode, you'll hear from Livy Gormali, leading
1: child behaviour expert and parenting coach. And a lot of those extra behaviours, they're not misbehaving and being bratty, they're overwhelmed in a scenario that they only get once a year. And we haven't had a normal Christmas for the last two Christmases, so like, they haven't had a chance to practice this. So be kind to yourselves, be supportive of your own needs, I think.
0: With more than 20 years' experience in working with children and their families, Livy has helped hundreds of parents to cope with behaviours and parent more efficiently through her specialist knowledge of early intervention, behaviour management and school inclusion. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up and this is Livy Gormally. Livy, it's really great to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's been a strange couple of years. Uh, Can I start by asking you where we are right now? You know, we've seen a lot of change, uncertainty, stops and starts. In your professional experience and view, how has this globally affected children's behaviour and development?
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to say that it's affected parents and children, adults, everyone across the board. I think it's affected how we've tried to parent. Everyone's trying to do their best under really challenging circumstances. And um, the thing I think I noticed the most is that we've all been expected to parent parent away from how we would normally choose to do so we're not the ones who've been making the decisions and that's really impacted the ability to parent how we want to and the impact that that's had on the children so it's had an, an impact globally with you know education with social and emotional development with relationships with between siblings family friends so it really is quite unprecedented for parents and for families and for schools working through these challenges We were all obviously at home when we would ordinarily have been at school or at at work.
0: And for some of us, that would have been really appealing. You know, many parents really crave that quality time with their kids. What was the impact on families of suddenly having that?
1: Yeah, again, it was very split. Some families really loved it, loved having that extra time together. The moments where you felt like you were always rushing away had suddenly become available. We had more flexibility. The first part of lockdown, it seemed like we were all living a little bit like we were on holiday, long lunches together, everyone interacting. Um, I think the reality of that is once we realized that this was going to go on for quite some time and had to adjust everyone's real life expectations around that, like how do you fit in school? How do you fit in work when you've got children at home? Um, some parents were able to work very flexibly and that was great for families because it enabled you to be able to split parenting. It enabled you to be able to support your children through schoolwork. Other parents were, were really stuck in the middle of having to make very difficult choices of saying, look, here's your online working. You have to do it yourself. I have to be on a work call myself. I have to be doing other things. And it made for a very difficult parenting decisions, I think think because it seemed like parents because they were actually there physically they were having to make very difficult emotional choices as to whether they seemed like they were choosing their children over their work so for some I think it was a really lovely recentering of family life it taught us a lot about how to really maximize on the time we have together but for others it was really very challenging in having to make incredibly difficult family decisions that weren't being made by us we weren't the ones who were calling the shots on this and I think that yeah it's a, a very mixed exposure and that's what I'm finding with the clients that I'm working with is some people have really been able to reevaluate how they parent um, and some have taken that very hard and, and very personally thinking I really wanted to be the person who you know played games all day and you know made cupcakes and did all of the things that you could see banana bread you know all over the, you know social media but actually the reality is is that a lot of parents couldn't do that and that wasn't by choice it was by necessity mm. it was a kind of different type
0: of guilt that I think we felt at times when we were pulled in different ways.
1: Yeah, because we weren't making the choices ourselves. It was being dictated by somebody else. And that makes it very difficult for parenting because it takes you away from how you would typically choose to parent. Mm.
0: Livia, I know that you have worked with uh, schools and from a school perspective and from some of my colleagues, they are observing that children are happy to be back in school, but that they sometimes find it hard to solve issues between peers for themselves. Um one of my colleagues said that it seemed like uh, some of her students are used to having had their every word hung on by their significant adults and they find it hard to wait, take turns, listen um, and not interrupt for example. So what kind of spectrum of altered behaviours are you seeing in the fallout from Covid in your work?
1: Yeah, definitely with some of the schools I've worked with, the impact of independent skills, learning to listen, waiting, taking turns. Um, some some schools have noticed a sort of a different ability to share difficulties with conflict resolution within their peer groups. It's understandable why some of these things are happening. They just have not had the exposure. They haven't had the practice of working through those things and everybody's just suddenly jumped one or one and a half now academic years ahead without having had the foundation skills of all of these areas that were practiced, um, children starting preschools without having had any toddler group experience, children starting reception without having to had any preschool experience. And we do the, the year before to prepare us for the next year, particularly through education like all of those foundation skills are really impacted. I think it's really important to remember as well, the teaching staff did not know what peer group they were getting back. They, you know, some children had the really wonderful benefits of having a lot of adult input, a lot of extra time reading, a lot of extra time on their spellings, on their maths, all of their core foundation skills. Lots of times chatting as families, where you've had, you know, the language and development skills can really be improved. And other families just didn't have that. And again, not by choice, just by, um, you know, just by exposure, by necessity, certain things didn't necessarily get covered off. I've worked with some children who their independent skills have actually improved because they were set up for their you know, school learning and they were like, okay, this is what you've got to do today. These are the activities. And it was very much teacher led. And there were other parents who were the other side of the screen, even though the children were at school, giving them the pencils, giving them the pens, giving them the extra support, making sure that they had everything they did. My eldest son's uh, secondary school, you know, they weren't allowed to have their cameras on in lessons uh, for safeguarding reasons. So everything was done. They were given a bit of information to the start the lesson And then at the age of 14, they were expected to do everything independently, most of it online, a lot of YouTube clips that they were having to watch. And it's very hard at that age to have those skills, you know, both in confidence, but in understanding like how long to stay on task, how work is marked, what feedback you're getting from the teacher. And I think that class by class and school by school, that varied dramatically in terms of the cohort of the children. So when coming back to school, the teachers who would usually have have a really good measure of what's coming into their class or who's coming into their class don't have that information it's almost as if everyone's starting off in reception again everyone's got to get to know you got to get to know where you've been what you've done Um, friendship groups changed over the 18 months that we were out as well so lots of things changed for the kids it's really like you know starting afresh and taking it from day one in each episode of race
0: are up we hear from a member of our GDST family to gain their perspective on the matter at hand. Today, we hear from Caroline Hume McKibben, head of Kensington Prep. I've always been
2: fascinated by the behaviour of children, how and why they behave in the way they do as they develop and grow on their learning journey. Any given trigger or motivation can give a different behaviour response. Change can have a huge impact on children's behaviour as they crave safety, security and stability. When these basic needs are compromised, it can often be seen in a child's behaviour. The pandemic is a very good example of this. Many children have struggled to reconnect to a wider social community setting, finding sharing, collaboration tricky to navigate. The upcoming Christmas period will also bring its own challenges as the change in routine, the obvious excitement, but also if parents may be hosting extended family with whom children are unfamiliar or they may themselves be staying away. Maintaining some kind of routine in these circumstances can provide safety and security Helping children to navigate their emotions. My thoughts really are to look out for triggers and apply preemptive strategies in accordance. This kind of analytical approach I find really helps to work out the mechanics of the behaviour and leads to more successful intervention, support, and
0: strategies. Livy, talk us through the psychological and emotional reasons why children may have become needier through being at home with parents.
1: I think a lot of the impact of COVID being at home was greatly affected by the lack of contact that parents had with other members of their families, with friends, with other professionals that they could talk to about what was going on. Everyone's experience through COVID was so incredibly personal, depending on you know your work life balance, where your family lived, depending on anxiety levels, whether you had COVID, whether you didn't, if you were shielding, how it was affecting your children's mental health as well. And I think that there isn't really one answer to that, that it affected so many people in so many different ways. And I think the really important thing is, is looking at how it affected you personally as a family and trying to work out what was it that I missed in that time? What was it that I craved in that time? How did that impact me as a family? And what can I do moving forward? I'm a really big believer in, in looking forward to what we can do to change this as opposed to thinking about how it impacted us. When you visit a family or a school
0: and you are dealing with challenging behaviour, how do you approach it? What's your go-to strategy?
1: Yeah, so my background is behavior analysis. So I always look at the function of a behavior. So functional analysis. It's really important for every child to look at why the behavior might be happening. Um, So it's not necessarily just, okay, a child might be continually getting down in class or continually asking questions or sitting very quietly in the corner. It's about looking at why they're doing that. What is happening before in the run up to that? Are they understanding the instructions? Is the information too much? Is the information too little? Are they overstimulated, understimulated? And it's really like when I'm in a classroom, I look at the child I'm typically there to observe, but I also look at the class as a whole. How is that child doing in comparison to their peers? Are they able to respond to the same amount of instructions? Are they able to output the same amount of academic work? Are they interacting socially in the same way? It doesn't mean that they have to be doing all of these things all of the time, but it's, about looking at the impact for that particular child and the impact that has on the class as a whole, how the teacher can continue teaching if you have a child who's showing disruptive behaviors, how the teacher can continue to boost confidence when you have a peer group who are struggling with one particular area. So the function analysis is looking at why behaviors are happening is really important, much more important actually than the behavior that's actually happening because that way you can be preempt. You can put support strategies in play to help a child over a hurdle as opposed to getting to hit the hurdle and then having to, to, to repair the damage or support them afterwards.
0: Livvy, what terminology do you use? I mean, we, we talk about poor behaviour in education. Is that
1: judgmental or unhelpful? Yeah. Professionally, I always work with appropriate or inappropriate behaviour. I see behaviour as everything that we do the good and the not so good behaviors. Walking, talking, eating, sleeping, drinking, socializing, everything that we do is behavior. And I think as parents, we often get into the mindset that behavior is just the bad stuff. So I really like parents to look at it from everything you do, because if you look at how you promote language, which we would say is a good behavior, it's something that you go, okay, I gave that lots of attention. I gave that lots of focus. I modeled it. I repeated it. I praised it. And if you think about that's why language increases, that's why language develops. You know, a child learns, I ask for something and then suddenly I get something. So if you think about behavior as something that you can encourage, something that you can develop, something. That you can really teach. It's a really positive way of looking at the inappropriate behaviors as well. What am I trying to teach as an appropriate alternative to what they're doing? So you can say, that behavior is not okay. This is what I'd like you to do instead. And I think it's really important to try and give your airtime to the behavior you're trying to promote. So identify what you don't like and then give your attention to what you do like. It's not okay to snatch that toy. If you'd like a turn, you need to ask your friend. It's not okay to shout out in class. If you want to ask me something, remember to raise your hand and I'll come to you. So those types of phrases are used a lot in class and, and we want to try and promote as much kind of crossover from home to school as possible to really encourage that consistency that children learn, that the attention that they're getting and what we're trying to promote is what we want to see more of.
0: With that crossover in mind um, between home and school, what can parents and carers be doing to help schools to move forward?
1: Yeah. So again, I think, um, one of the difficult things over COVID was the communication between parents, um, you know, parents evenings. It seems everyone's getting used to Zoom parent evenings and not necessarily having, um, you know, that much actual interpersonal contact. And I think that as, you know, we're going to have to get used to that moving forward because it seems like that's the way things are now really being prepared trying to ask the school for guidance in terms of what can we be doing to help? What can we do additionally to support our children? And that's not just the academic stuff. It's not just extra reading, extra spelling, extra maths. It's not about putting extra academic load on our kids. It's about understanding how to support a child if they're having problems with a friendship, how to support our children if they're having problems understanding how to share you mentioned earlier Kathy that you know a lot of parents have spent a lot of time with their kids and have you know played Endless games of Uno and Snakes and Ladders and Monopoly and all of the things that we've done. But actually, when playing peer to peer, you play very differently than you do adult to peer. So, most of us, when we play with our kids, you know, if they land on the snake and get a bad turn and they're about to lose the game, we might go, Oh, don't worry. Our peers. To save the peace. Yeah. Peers <laughs> don't do that. They go, Ha, you are on the snake. I'm winning now and you're not doing it. Not
0: a chance. Yeah. Not a
1: chance. Um, um, but when you're playing peer-to-peer, it's really important to remember that kids need to practice that. They need to practice losing. They need to practice not being their favorite character. They need to practice not leading a game, You know, tolerating others in their space. And I think that's a really helpful skill for parents to do because those are quite significant things that that, that are happening. We also, it's really important to remember that at home, a lot of Peers or a lot of children have been having conflict resolutions with siblings, some of whom might have maybe been more dominant, others might have been a little bit more, okay, you're the younger one, I'm just going to help you through this, you know, maybe give them a little bit more support. Some children's language and communication skills have really increased by having older siblings around. <laughs> Not always beneficial language, I hasten to add, but but certainly the content of the language, when you're talking with a sibling who's older than you, you tend to upskill your levels as a younger sibling, but that doesn't mean that you've you've been able to upskill your emotional development as well. So, and that's why I think with siblings, there've been some quite up and down behaviors of that very kind of spiky, sometimes they're getting on really well and sometimes they're not, because we sort of expecting them to just be able to take on board the same information, take on board the same responses, um, deal with things in the same way. And actually, a younger child, you can't really fast track that emotional development, um, and that's why you have that kind of quite spiky behaviour as sibling play at the moment.
0: It's utterly fascinating. I'm sure that I'm not the only parent or carer nodding along in recognition at this talk, um, and and also really appreciating the advice, but also just appreciating um, hearing that this is normal behaviour within a family during this time. Can we talk a bit from a parent's perspective? Sometimes it is really horrible to feel like you are being cruel to be kind and sometimes it's really, really difficult to keep it all together when actually you, know, you, you feel that like you need your child to learn a difficult lesson, but you can't bear to see them learn that difficult lesson. Can you talk to us a little bit about that kind of perspective, keeping perspective or maintaining perspective and also the self-care involved um, in parenting?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm I'm a mom of three kids myself, so I really it's the reason I started my company in the first place is because I really had a bank of information from my professional career that I really felt parents needed to know. I don't know how you do it without having all of the information, all the functional analysis, all the behavior analysis knowing about child development. But I think on top of that parents then do take on board a huge amount of of pressure on top of themselves to be expected to know this there's an enormous amount of information on social media through amazing books and through you know wonderful professionals who are out there but sometimes it's really hard when you're reading through that information to Know how that applies to you as a family. But I think it's really hard if you try something that loads and loads of other people have tried and you can't make it work. And I think it's important for parents to understand that if a strategy isn't working, it's because it's not the right strategy for that family. And I think it's about really parenting how you want to do it. Like I call it like core value parenting. Really taking on board, like what's important to you, what's important to your family, what values do you want to uphold and really trying to have that as the the starting point of your strategy. If you are a family, say for example, who strongly believes that you should eat everything on your plate, but maybe... One parent thinks everything must go and the other parent was raised to say, okay, well actually if you've if you've had enough, you've had enough. You're going to have conflict at mealtimes. In terms of being kind to yourself, look at your family from the inside. Take the parenting rules that you really believe in and try and apply strategies that you feel that you can do. And you will see behavior change because you've put so much effort into it. But the difficulty is, is that effort can't be maintained. And then you start to see things tipping off, behaviors may get worse, you might get frustrated with the strategy and that just leads to you feeling like, oh, we've tried one more thing and it hasn't worked, so back to the drawing board. And often, yeah, it can be really demoralizing. It can be demoralizing if one of your friends is doing something and it's working so successfully and you try it and it doesn't work. The reason it doesn't work is because it's not the right strategy for you. So look at what's important, what you feel that you can implement, I think it's also, um, a, something that I've, I've seen with a lot of families recently is all of us adults and children are craving. F- social contact, craving, um, you know, adult contact, play dates, you know, just being out and about. It's a treat to be in the park with other people. It's a treat to be around at someone else's house. But off the back of that is coming quite a lot of what I'm calling social implosion, where actually a tired child who's just started, you know, you know, a lot of our children are in, in a phase where it's like they've just started school. They're tired, they're overstimulated, they're overwhelmed by what's going on. And throw, going in at, at something different at the end of the day can be too much. So really think Saf, it's okay to say no as a parent. It's okay to say actually can we do that play date a different time. It's okay to say yeah great come around for a play but we're going to do tea on our own. You know don't get drawn into thinking oh this is going really well let's all have tea together because a whole group of hungry children around the table who all wanting the same chair and the same plate and the same you know lots of different food is going to cause conflict at a time when you're also trying to catch up with your friends. So be realistic with your expectations, be kind to yourself as parents. We have been through more in these last 18 months, more things thrown at us, more change, more transitions, more starts and stops than I can remember in in my lifetime, certainly. And I think that we need to take a, a breather and say, we are doing the best we can, we can help each other, at home and school by trying to support each other through that. Finding out what you can do to help, finding out additional things that you can do to support your child's academic and social learning, it shouldn't just fall on the shoulders of
0: the school. Definitely. I have to say the concept of social implosion, I'm sure that many adults listening, myself included, will will understand that, the sense of being overwhelmed with their social possibilities after a, a year of nothing. So we've talked a bit about challenging or inappropriate behaviour, as you said. Tell us some strategies for dealing with a distressed child who has, in inverted commas, misbehaved.
1: Yeah, so one of the things that um, we haven't spoken about in terms of the additional challenges that children are facing at the moment is I think quite a lot of children, adults included, are On the point of overwhelm, a lot of the time, it doesn't take much to tip us over the edge. It doesn't take much to um, be angry. It doesn't take much to be emotional. And I think it's really important to factor that in to any strategies that you have when you're dealing with children at home and in the classroom. When a child is overwhelmed, they can't often take on board any additional information. So if you're dealing with a child who's really struggling and you're giving them a lot of verbal information, a lot of, you know, why did you do that? They will find it harder to come out of that behavior. I think sometimes it's a case of, you know, identifying that is not okay trying to give them time to calm down and then discussing it with them at a time when things are calm. We all know as adults as well, like once you're feeling angry or once you're feeling um, out of control, having other people tell you what you should have done or what you could have done can be quite frustrating. And I think the same thing applies to children as well. It's about looking at sometimes the children are overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed because auditory processing skills are maybe challenged. It's loud in the classroom. It's loud sometimes at home. It's loud when you're at play dates and the kids are not used to it. Sometimes it's hard to concentrate when there's lots of other noise going around. And again, these are the things that the children would have been practicing through being being, you know, at swimming lessons where there's loud and echoey at Ballet classes where it's loud and echoey, at birthday parties where everything's, you know, whizzing around, the kids haven't practiced that. So their, like, ability to focus and stay on task with noise and distraction around them is compromised. And I think it's really important to remember that if a child is constantly not listening in class, it might be that they just are finding it really hard to focus. So actually, repeating an instruction time and time again isn't going to help them. By actually, you know, saying, look, Look at me. Try and remember. Repeat back. Give extra visual information. Write a little, you know, a cue card down. Um, you break an instruction down into smaller parts. Those are the really important things that you can do to try and help the children for the next time. I've always say that you're ignoring the, you know, the behaviour and not the child. You're identifying the child is emotional, and you can say, I can see that you're cross it's not okay to behave like that. I can understand why you're frustrated, but you have to learn to use your words if you're feeling frustrated. So I think we, we often jump into don't do that. It's not okay to, you know, to hit. And actually what they're needing is a strategy out, as opposed to like, I don't know how to make this right. You know, you can't do that. You must say sorry. And some children find saying sorry, really difficult. Sometimes, you know, that kind of friendship repair, if you feel embarrassed in a classroom, if you, you know, if you're the one who hasn't listened and you then feel embarrassed about, you know, about not being able to do it, or if your cohort have all understood everything and your teacher said, if anybody doesn't understand, put your hands up. Like a lot of children really struggle to be the person, the only one who can't do it. So I think instead of looking at sort of the misbehaving, I don't think we should ignore inappropriate behavior. I think every inappropriate behavior, there should be some form of teaching element to that. I certainly think that kids need to know the difference between what's okay and what is not okay. But the function analysis, the why they're doing it is is much more important from my point of view, because you have to learn to read triggers, you have to learn to be preemptive and the children as well in that run up to, I can see that you're getting cross or I can see that you're feeling frustrated enables them to have a strategy moving forward as opposed to hitting a wall and then not being able to get themselves out of it.
0: So almost kind of giving them a heads up that you have noticed how they're
1: feeling, naming that behavior. Yeah. And it's okay to feel cross. It's okay to feel frustrated. It's okay to feel all of these things. We feel them too, but it's not okay to behave like that as a result. Um, and, And I think when dealing with kids at the moment, we are all almost brimming on overflow the whole time and it's about making sure that as parents we do the things that make us feel calmer Um, we take the time out you know to be able to look after ourselves as well as hard as that is to find the time to do something for yourself it is important because if you burn out as a parent it's really hard to keep that momentum going um but also understand that you know little changes can have a really big impact it doesn't need to be massive parenting shifts it just needs to be like if your child is struggling with a lot of behavior look at external factors look at sleep look at how much sleep look at when they're sleeping look at food and food intake it's about looking at you know, trying to find the reason for the behavior as opposed to just dealing with the behavior itself
0: Let's talk a bit more about those external factors. Uh, We're approaching one of the most stressful times of the year. A YouGov poll found that two in five Brits feel stressed during the festive season. About one in four has struggled with anxiety or depression during this period. Children are overwhelmed with the number of gifts that some of them get. Surely that is a cocktail
1: for a kind of behaviour flashpoint A hundred percent. And I think knowing that is actually really important. You know, we're meant to have this amazing, delightful, magical time at Christmas. And actually it's really, really tough. As you say, the things that usually make us tick, the things that usually we grab hold of and hold onto so dearly as parents are things like structure, routine, knowing about if my child stays up late, behaviors are not going to be good the next day. But we get rollercoasted into this, like it's okay, we can have late nights. Of course, enjoy a late night at Christmas, but your next day you're going to need to make sure that you adapt your expectations. You might need to lower your expectations. You might to give a little bit more support. One of the things that often parents ask about at Christmas time is like, oh, you know, the the Christmas meal, like all sitting down together. Now, if you have younger kids or children who suffer from being hungry, like my boys suffer very much from being hungry and angry at the same time. If you're going to a relative's house and you usually eat at, you know, 1231 o'clock and they go, Oh, you know, we're going to have a few canopies to start off with. And then we're going to have, you know, an, our Christmas lunch at three o'clock. Try and think, okay, if you're not having a big family lunch until later on in the day, give them a big breakfast, give them a mid morning snack, give them something at their normal lunchtime. Remember on Christmas Day what works for you as a family. Even if your family's children can wait till three o'clock to eat, it doesn't mean that yours can. And it's okay that they can't. It's not a parenting fail or a child fail, it's something that they're not used to. It's okay to do that. It's okay to support your children if you know that what they're going to be put through is hard. Tell other family members like what your kids like, support them through it because it's a really, really hard time to have that. And a lot of those extra behaviors, they're not misbehaving and being bratty. They're overwhelmed in a, a scenario that they only get once a year. And we haven't had a normal Christmas for the last two Christmases, so like they haven't had a chance to practice this. So be kind to yourselves, try and and know what goes on as a family. Pre-warn other family members that that's what you're doing because sometimes that can be an additional stress if you're doing it on the day, if you're working to someone else's timings. Just say, actually, that's lovely. We'll join you after lunch. Be supportive of your own needs, I think.
0: Livvy, my thanks to you for this really helpful mix of authentic, um, evidence-informed, honest, guidance for families to take forward in the weeks ahead thank you thank
1: you it's been a pleasure
0: thank you for listening to this episode of raise her up from the gdst to hear all the experts we have on this series and to make sure you don't miss one please subscribe on spotify apple podcasts amazon google or wherever you get your podcasts also if you could leave a review and a five-star rating it'll help other parents and carers to find the podcast so they can listen and learn too I'm Kathy Walker. Join me on the next episode of Raise Her Up from the GDST when I'll be with author and Times journalist Harriet Walker. I said earlier we shouldn't follow any rules, but actually one rule I think is really useful is don't read it back. I think that for that type of journaling for mental health or writing down your feelings in order to get them out of your head and to try and rationalise them, lots of the advice around that is, is not to look at it again. Write it all down and do that for 20 minutes and then close the document or, or put the notebook away and then, and then don't look back. I'll see you then.